0: Hey all Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now, so we appreciate your continued support, just help us spread the word. Happy 2019! For action let me have your attention for a moment
1: let's talk about something important now we're talking business let's talk business
0: yeah let's talk business oh you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around huh
1: i'm talking about form i'm talking about content i'm talking about interrelationships i'm talking about god the devil hell heaven it's too serene will we're trying to make a movie and not a film we have a new category this year best film ever made by a human being you should have got- Oscar. Martin. Who are you working for? The Knutzes. Who, who the f*** are the Knutzes? These are big movies Think about big men in tights. Roll that motherfucking camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal.
0: Hello everyone, this is Oscar Dahl with Matthew Knutson and this is We Like Movies retrospectating 1999, our celebration of all things 1999, The Phantom Menace, released May 19th. 1999. This is a big one,
1: Matt. It is a big one in terms of the expectations.
0: Wait, wait, wait. This is not, not your favorite movie of uh, <laughs> of all time?
1: I think this is going to be a little bit of a turning point for this retrospectating series, right? I mean, I guess we included She's All That early on, which I don't think is either of our, you know, it's, it's certainly not one of our favorite films, but we thought it was significant. Uh, this was not only the most anticipated film of 1999, it may have been the most anticipated film of all time up to that point, right? And maybe the most most resoundingly disappointing film ever.
0: I do think the disappointment took a little while to set in. Yeah, I think
1: it was more like shock and denial. There was really yeah. a, a Kubler-Ross thing that was going on with this, like shock and anger and then bargaining. Like, no, 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 no. I, I clearly missed something, you know. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we kept going back to see it multiple times because we were just baffled. Like, uh, no. Some, what Something, it just was confusing. That's probably the best word to use for how I felt in 1999. I was incredibly confused. Yeah. Having drug like family members and stuff to that opening night screening on Wednesday, the 19th, people taking off work, you know, parents taking their kids out of school and, and camping on the street. For weeks uh, to get tickets, some people months. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, there was just such this overwhelming l- sense of confusion on that night.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely saw it a few times in the th- like three or four times, and I, you know, part of it was I was just a dumb kid, and I was like, okay, I, you know, it's a Star Wars movie, I have to like it, right? And then trying to figure out how you can get yourself to really like it. You know, it, it took me a while to realize, oh, actually, this movie sucks ass. Um, <laughs> but there, I mean, in so know, many the, words, there were, you know, there are people who liked I mean, Roger Ebert wrote a four-star review of this movie, right? (laughs) And I read all of Ebert's reviews at the time and you know it got me fucking stoked and there are some people who gave it a good review and those tended to be the people who didn't take Star Wars as seriously as you know the the fanboys or whatever interesting I don't know I mean it's interesting to see how this movie has has aged too but where where would you like to start here? I
1: think we should always start these things with context right? Seeing as we are uh, retrospectating the year 1999 let's travel back to May 19th of 1999 where we were obviously both in high school Uh, I guess we would have been out of school by this point, right? Would this have been summer break by May? I think it was because I think I was already working at the movie theater by this point.
0: It's possible. I I, I want to say it was either that week or the week after where, where school ended for us.
1: Might have been uh, might have been a little bit of overlap, but I guess the reason I bring it up is because the summer of 1999, and this will probably come up many times over the course of the next few films we talk about here, the first movie theater, actually the only movie theater I've ever worked at, Regal Bellevue Galleria 16, which was brand new at the time. It, it opened like two months before Star Wars came out. And I went straight over there and got a job. Part of the reason I think I went over there to get a job was so that I would have an in to get tickets for this thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I think I had ulterior motives knowing that this was going to be a big summer and that I was the right age and that I was going to be able to get early tickets for the screening. And so I think I'd been there for a couple weeks when I went and had that discussion with the manager and got a bunch of tickets for friends and family for opening night. And I was pretty damn stoked. I got to be honest.
0: You know, let's be clear that the, the stokage was real and legitimate. Because the trailer was great, or the tra- and the trailers and the teasers were great, and there's no reason to believe that this movie would suck. You know, I-, I went and saw it at Cinerama. I remember whenever the tickets went on sale, like three weeks before, a month before, waited in line for hours. You know, took took shifts with with my brother and my mom, I believe, <laughs> and we ended up getting tickets for the Thursday morning at 10 a.m. And yeah, could not have been more pumped. You know, my younger brother was probably an even bigger Star Wars guy, Anders, who was uh, on the show. A couple weeks back. Mm-hmm. He and my mom even went to the midnight release at Toys R Us a couple weeks beforehand to get the toys. Oh, wow. We were all in. Big Star Wars family. Had always had the movies. Yeah. You know, tradition on sick days, we're, we're to watch the entire trilogy of, of Star Wars. Absolutely. 16 years old. This is absolutely perfect.
1: And you mentioned the trailer. I mean, I think it's definitely significant to sort of remember that we are we are early internet at this point mm-hmm. and we're, you know, we're ain't it cool news and we're dark horizons and we're coming soon.com or whatever. And we're a little bit of IMDb, but for the most part, we're getting our trailers from entertainment tonight. Yeah. like yeah. I, I remember vividly like standing in my dad's kitchen and watching entertainment tonight on the little tiny little, you know, <laughs> CRT tube screen and just being glued to that fucking trailer. It seemed, yeah, it seemed like the biggest thing in the history of movies. And we're just like, all right, we're in. How do we do this? Where do we sign up? We're 21 years removed from A New Hope by this point, right? Yeah. 77 to 99?
0: Almost, yeah, yeah. 16 years since uh, Return of the Jedi.
1: You know, we're going to get the the final film in the Skywalker saga, The Rise of Skywalker, this December, and it'll be exactly 20 years, 20 years and change since The Phantom Menace. Uh, And it is, you know, it's the fourth film in a nine-film saga, I guess. So it sits, you know, pretty much smack dab right in the middle of this cultural experience. You know, widely regarded as the nadir, like as the the low point of this series. Critically, critically at least.
0: The the legacy of the fandom for this movie is extremely interesting to me. There are a lot of fanboys, a lot of stuff online where people are big prequel defenders. And whether you go to Reddit and go to prequel memes or people who talk about how, okay, maybe the dialogue isn't great, but uh, the story is fantastic or whatever. Or they appreciate just the creativity of world building that George Lucas went through here. There's a lot of people who are still in denial about how bad this movie is.
1: There's probably a bit of an age gap situation as well right you know anybody who was 15 plus and had been sort of like raised on the original trilogy was incredibly confused and or angered by this whereas people who were too young to have seen the original trilogy or weren't maybe weren't that familiar with the original trilogy this was probably pretty mind-blowing and formative for them be interesting to know the age of some of the so-called defenders right or the re-evaluators
0: so Upon rewatch, Matt, what is redeemable about this movie, if anything?
1: Well, you know, I was thinking about this today. I was putting my notes together. And, like, there has been so many of these kinds of conversations and reevaluations and rewatches and YouTube videos. And there was a fucking documentary called The People versus George Lucas, which, all, which was all about the reaction. So I want to try and couch this thing in something more... Analytical and sure. critical, yeah, absolutely. Does that makes sense. Like, I'd like to try and it, it's not about necessarily seeing the bright side or whatever, but I do want to focus a little more on the cultural relevance and reverberations as opposed to just reinforcing all of the things that are terrible about this film. That have, is
0: well trod territory.
1: I, I mentioned the Blank Check podcast here all the time, and that podcast actually started as Griffin Newman and David Sims' Phantom Menace podcast. Like, they started a podcast just so they could talk about the Phantom Menace every week, not the. Star Wars minute sort of analytics but they basically chose a different subject. So they would do a week on the Gungans and they would do a week on <laughs> Naboo and they would do a week on, you know, Palpatine and they would they would just break down every and you know try to understand what this movie yeah. was even about. And they basically came to this, the realization that this mm-hmm. movie is baffling, that it's just completely fucking baffling. We agree this movie's bad and we know the reasons why. So let's 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 dig a little deeper into like how this movie has aged and what it meant to the overall context of 1999. Right. If we can.
0: Well, let's let's start there. I mean, what does this movie to you say about, you know, 1999, the time it came out and the, and, and the sort of the culture of film at that time and, and how that's evolved since? I, I, I do think it's significant, like I said, that this sort of like
1: falls right in the middle of this saga that has actually continued and has managed to find something of a renaissance here in the last few years. At the time, seeing this, I was like, oh, okay, well, that, that, then this clearly doesn't work anymore. Like, it, it seemed to me like it was an attempt to try and recapture something that was not recapturable. Like, as a 16-year-old kid watching this, I was like, oh, okay, well, we're done. Like, let's just put this thing to bed. It's just that was something that exists in the late 70s and early 80s that was some kind of uh, lightning in a bottle. And let's uh, let's leave it alone because obviously we can't recapture this. But of course, the train had left the station. So we we're going to get Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. They, those weren't redeemable either. And so by the time that uh, Disney came along and bought Lucasfilm and decided to, to sort of like resurrect this thing, I'm sure you remember how skeptical yeah. I was because I was still feeling very, very burned. So this to me was a real wake up call as a 16 year old and a real sort of splash of cold water to the face in in a lot of ways this was kind of a a movie that forced me to grow up a little bit it poked me in a way that i hadn't experienced although that being said we'd had the lost world what two years before this right 97 and that had a similar effect on me i mean really this the lost world and the kingdom of the crystal skull that is the is the holy Mm -hmm. trinity of disappointment right there it's
0: interesting because this movie made money obviously made a fuck ton of money and the the two sequels would make more money The, the movies would get increasingly more critically acclaimed Modest as that acclaim was. Incremental. But in terms of fan reaction in terms of what was built up and what was delivered I, I think there's probably an argument to be made that this is the most disappointing movie of of all time all things considered right? Uh,
1: relative to the expectation and to the the excitement yeah 100% the expectation for this was bigger than it was for Lost World or King of the Crystal Skull yeah relatively speaking I mean I guess you could make it I guess you could make an argument for The Force Awakens but I think that The Force Awakens still has residual resentment hanging over it because of this Fiasco, right? Yeah. Like, there are people who who feel burned by this, and as a result, like me, I was skeptical about The Force Awakens. Whereas this, there was no reason to be skeptical yet. We had nothing but good memories of the original trilogy.
0: And the period between the first trilogy and the release of this movie had not seen the rise of the internet as we know it today, right? Yes, Yes. If the original trilogy had come out, Today, it wouldn't have been as beloved. Yeah, you know, just the the internet takedowns weren't there. The the videos showing the plot holes, the making fun of the dialogue, whatever memes, well, like, that stuff. Would have lessened the impact of the original trilogy, which be, you know became this mythical thing to people. I'm not talking down about the original trilogy. I still absolutely adore it. It was a sort of perfect time because you know the cynicism of the internet hadn't infected uh, the Star Wars franchise at this point, right? And you know, in a way, it sort of birthed that sort of fanboy reaction and the contrarianism and the sort of online vitriol that we that we are all too familiar with today, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe one of the most famous
1: YouTube series ever. Just in terms of like fan reaction or uh, critical discussion of popular culture, is the rise of the red letter media, Mister Planket stuff, right? Like I was actually revisiting a couple of those today. You know, we we discussed them before, and and you know sometimes they're a little bit of a tough sit just because he gets so obsessed with some of the comedic embellishment. You know, like I'm very interested in his critical dissection.
0: Yeah, and I wish it was only that.
1: Exactly, exactly. But he has a character to play, and he you know he's he's created a whole he's created a whole vehicle, which clearly makes him laugh and so that's fine it's it's very it's very indulgent but he makes so many good points that you understand why those why that series kind of like rose to prominence and was one of the first real kind of like youtube success stories right yeah and it,
0: you know i've I've, re, I've watched that a handful of times um and, and the, especially the phantom menace one is a really good deep dive into everything that's wrong and why it's wrong and sort of the cynicism of george lucas going into it yeah it, it's informative and we don't want to we don't need to get into into that stuff i, I still think that probably is the biggest disappointment of all time just because the expectations were allowed to get so high just by the the, the nostalgia member berries of the original trilogy. You know, if you didn't know it anecdotally already, you understood that everyone's obsessed with Star Wars. This is something that we'll all be able to enjoy together, the rebirth of this franchise that a lot of people didn't think was ever going to happen again. I don't know, I mean you you talked earlier about, uh, you saw this movie and you were like, well, I guess this doesn't work. Which is interesting because, say what you will about the quality of the films, but George Lucas did try something new right he didn't just go back to the well certain character arcs or certain character tropes or or whoever in in, in the prequels he tried to make something completely different
1: right which is significant because that's what JJ was JJ was accused of just going back to the well Mm -hmm. and just sort of like reheating everything we loved from the original yeah and it worked it worked like a charm yeah
0: exactly and
1: uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big force awakens defender I, I actually really 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 love the force awakens and I like it a lot more than The Last Jedi. But I get why people bristle at some of the stuff that seems like at some of the stuff that seems pandering yeah I mean I've been thinking a lot about fan service recently and you know we've just had Avengers Endgame come out and it's you know it's setting records on a weekly basis it's pretty much universally critically acclaimed it hasn't succumbed to any kind of backlash yet it may at some point but for the most part it seems to be weathering the storm pretty well and you know looks to maybe even unset Avatar and become the highest grossing film of all time potentially Mm -hmm. within the next few weeks and I've been thinking a lot about how successful the fan service is in that and how clunky the fan service is in something like the phantom menace right yeah how how shoehorned in c3po and r2d2 whoever are into this narrative just by nature of the fact that they really really want to scratch that fan service itch mm-hmm. the lack of logic in how those things are imposed upon us you know the fact that anakin is building this protocol droid why would a kid even if he is a child genius why would he need Mm-hmm. a protocol droid yes. living on this desert planet you know to say nothing of the fact that uh, that he truly would have to be you know the chosen one child genius to be able to invent something like this what purpose could that serve for his lifestyle.
0: Yeah, and sort of undermining the uh first twenty minutes of a new hope while doing so.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then they end up having to retcon, you know, they had end up having to like wipe his memory two movies later or something, right? So he doesn't have he doesn't it's ridiculous. I mean this movie's just full of stuff like that where it's just it's really, really sweaty trying to impose these kinds of things on us, as opposed to something like Force Awakens that I think does it pretty elegantly, even if it is sort of pandering fan service, and then something like Avengers Endgame, which I think has just perfected it. It just baked it in to the cake.
0: Endgame, I know we talked at length about that but it's you know, it's just the difference between earned and unearned fan service and you know people can smell the real deal when it happens. Uh, you, we're going to talk about Game of Thrones soon too and that is a whole other can of worms when it comes to fan service and what the audience deserves which, versus what <laughs> they're being given.
1: I wrote an article um, for our site uh, last week called The Midnight Ride of the Monoculture if anybody's interested in this kind of stuff they can go check it out, it's on the We Like Movies site. Basically I was just, I was consumed by thoughts about the fact that you basically had Game of Thrones and Avengers Endgame peaking, you know, in the same weekend, which I just think is something that's never happened before. Like the biggest thing in the history of television and probably the biggest thing in the history of cinema, or at least, you know, franchise filmmaking, are happening at the exact same time. And you have these two huge silos uh coming to an end at the or at least coming to an end of this volume at the same time. Yeah. And we're are sort of like nearing the end of I think of this kind of monocultural present tense in the fact that like we're we're now going to end up with all of these Marvel characters kind of schisming and spinning off and we're going to have spin-off series on the streaming platforms or we're going to have other you know prequels or origin stories or whatever and then we're going to end up with Star Wars series as well and there's going to be the Ryan Johnson non- Skywalker saga stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have, you know, Game of Thrones prequel series, and we're going to have all this other stuff, and we're going to s- expand to all the different platforms. But this might be the last time that, like, we just have something that is on quote unquote television and something that is happening at the multiplex, and they're both at the height of their cultural significance at the same time, which I don't think will ever happen again. And so, in regard to 99, it's interesting to look back and think about how there was a true monoculture happening then because you didn't have the ubiquity of this kind of franchise stuff right? Yeah. Like something we'll continue to talk about through this whole 1999 series is how remarkable the top 10 films of 99 box office list is, right? Yeah. Of course, The Phantom Menace is at the top of this list. The rest of the list is really, really remarkable. I mean, I'll just, I'll just rattle it off again for you here really quickly, just to show you what an interesting time we're living in compared to where we're at 20 years later. You had Star Wars episode one, of course, The Sixth Sense, Toy Story 2. All right. That was a sequel. (laughs) we're now going to get our the fourth film in that series later this summer you had the matrix which uh, you know was obviously peerless at the time it ended up getting two sequels you got tarzan you got the mummy Notting hill the world is not enough which you know obviously a bond film american beauty and then austin powers the spy who shagged me so all right you got some franchise stuff in there but then you also have you know weird that you know outliers like the Notting hill or american beauty mm-hmm. this you know the sixth sense which has came out of nowhere certainly didn't set itself up for any kind of s- sequelizing mm-hmm. now you know in in here in 2019 eight out of the 10 films on the top 10 list this year are going to be part of a franchise maybe maybe 10 out of 10 we'll see
0: yeah even 2018 box office there's one movie on here that is an original right which would be mm-hmm. bohemian rhapsody and that's number 10 everything else is a franchise film or a remake and so yeah the, it has changed and to what degree do you think phantom menace is a driver of that change or is just more an indicative of uh, some sort of inevitability it's, it's a really good
1: question i mean maybe this is you know maybe this stuff happens in in cycles and maybe it was just inevitable that we were eventually going to mean it's it's significant that a year later that 2000 is the year when we get x-men right Mm -hmm. you know even though blade had preceded, x-men is the movie that kind of proved that this comic book stuff was viable yeah and uh, and a lot of people look back i mean it is a marvel property technically and a lot of people look back on that and say like that's when the world changed like as soon as we saw x-men become a pretty decent sized hit and we started thinking about all these different characters and all these different books and all these different properties and graphic novels, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the wheels started turning that have led us to where we are now. Mm -hmm. As much as I love Avengers Endgame and as big of a fan as I've sort of developed into in terms of my relationship with that series, I am sympathetic to the people who don't get it or think it's bad for cinema on a grander mm-hmm. level and i mean i think it's interesting that this this whole star wars thing has now kind of like ebbed and flowed in terms of how people have reacted to these things you know technically uh, technically avengers endgame is now chasing force awakens for the top of the all-time domestic box office yeah now like i said we're gonna get the rise of of skywalker later this year and then they've said they're gonna take a little bit of a time off because solo didn't really work out so it's just interesting what a sort of checkered history the Star Wars franchise has had. You know, as much as pe- a lot of people aren't crazy about Ewoks and about Return of, Je- Return of the Jedi and stuff, this was the turning point that proved this thing was fallible, right? Yeah. That George Lucas was human. I mean, obviously, you know, he'd had uh, Howard the Duck and Radio Land Murders and uh, I don't know, even Willow was was not that big of a hit. So when he had strayed too far from the Star Wars franchise, he had uh, he had faltered a little bit, all Indiana Jones aside. But up to this point, in terms of Star Wars, he was still kind of a god. He he had such
0: autonomy on this film. It's interesting to look back and and just yeah f- from now what what we <laughs> what we think of George Lucas as a whole. We kind of think of this this bumbling dope who uh, you know has really lost his touch uh, that he had thirty years ago and keeps uh, just a guy just like a bad idea machine. I'm sure you have, but if you watch the uh, the documentary behind the scenes documentary for Phantom Menace, it, it is crazy how how much godlike power this guy had. It's kind of the only time it's ever happened where one singular person had complete autonomy over like a 200 million dollar film right i mean i guess james cameron has that sort of thing but basically owning owning the means of production right watching the behind the scenes stuff everyone demurred to him like he was so arrogant in his actions and sort of lazy in his creation of of this world that it's it's pretty astonishing this movie made the money it did and he was allowed to even make two more movies right I mean I I remember he had to sign up a a co-screenwriter after this one and that would solve the (laughs) problems or whatever but just the sort of slapdash nature of how he came up with the story and how seemingly quickly he wrote the script and how how little he cared about making a great movie as opposed to making just a spectacle. I mean, in retrospect, it almost feels like he wanted to just play with technology as opposed to actually make a good movie.
1: I found a very instructive quote from him in regards to reproduction of the film. Writing the script was much more enjoyable this time around because I wasn't constrained by anything. You can't write one of these movies without knowing how you're going to accomplish it. With CGI at my disposal, I knew I could do whatever I wanted. Ha 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 ha! Allegedly Carrie Fisher came in to do a little bit of punch up pretty late in the game. Yeah. Uh, because obviously they were friends and, you know, she was you know, legendarily kind of a uh, uncredited on, on many scripts throughout the eighties and nineties. Yeah, I mean it all starts with just how abysmal this script is. Lucas always went back to he always kept going back to the fact whenever he get criticized about this, the fact that the movie was made for children. And a lot of people have brought this up over the years, like, Well if it's made for children then why is it all about bureaucracy? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) and trade federate, you know, all the things that children love, like, you know, Senate
0: hearings and stuff. That seemed like a cop-out always, never... Never rang true, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing the movie does wrong is it's dreadfully boring. Mm-hmm. It's, it just can't even accomplish the what seems like the relatively simple task of
0: being exciting. It's 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 boring, and the I, I mean, it, it, it's pretty pointless to even go into the plot of this movie because it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it's got a it's got an extremely pointless like 30 minute detour in the middle to uh, to do a pod race right which doesn't make sense in a vacuum on its own but also is just a, a dumb thing and only for the sake it exists only for the sake of having a set piece in the middle of the movie
1: I think it's significant that people always point to the pod <laughs> that podcast <laughs> that people always point to the pod race as being like the one redeeming like that and the duel of the fates um, sure lightsaber battles being like the redeeming things and I really feel that that's just people grasping at straws right yeah like it's just an attempt to try I mean that's just residual confusion of just being like well it can't can't all be bad. It can't be as bad. Like, there's got to be something. There's got to be something redeeming. And, you know, like from a special effects standpoint, it's probably pretty groundbreaking. And the film was nominated for... It's visual effects. Uh, it actually was nominated for three Oscars, all of which it lost to The Matrix. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, there's that lightsaber battle at the end, which I guess is like it's it's fine. Sure. I mean, I really think the best thing you can say about the pod race or the lightsaber battle are that they're fine. They're fine. And um, and the fact that John Williams is just fundamentally incapable mm-hmm. of writing anything but great music. I mean, the Duel of the Fates thing still really works. It's still a, it's a standout piece of music, not just in this film but in the entire
0: series. I would say. Yeah, Duel of the Fates is good. That's that's basically the only thing. That's, <laughs> that's the that's movie's good. legacy. Darth Maul looks cool, I guess.
1: The, well, that that gets to the whole character problem of it all, right? Mm-hmm. This movie has no protagonist, and the characters resoundingly have almost no distinguishing characteristics. The most interesting character in the movie is this villain, and what does the movie do? Kills him off, right? Or does like, it it's just? Well, yeah, so that, that brings up a whole can of worms, I suppose, in terms of the history. But that is directly related to the fact that they realized retroactively that they had made a huge mistake killing off the only redeeming character in this movie right Mm -hmm. the only interesting character in the film yeah you see that character and you're like okay interesting okay there's something something we can hang our hat on at least this is somebody i'm going to be interested in following throughout the rest of you know throughout the next couple films and they slice him in half it's just an example of all the bad decisions made throughout this process
0: what do you think that george lucas was thinking throughout this entire thing like what what did you what do you think that he expected to happen did do you think he willfully didn't give this his all or give it the respect it deserved do you think he thought that whatever he touched was going to turn to gold just by the fact that he was george lucas and he could do it you know watching that documentary you feel you can sense his confidence in a way but also he seems to really not give a shit
1: yeah there is a disturbing like aloofness yeah for sure uh and and you know you pointed to arrogance and and yeah i, th- I think you know you get to a certain point with this stuff where you've created an empire and you probably think that you're kind of bulletproof, right? Yeah. He he probably thinks that he should be able to do this in his sleep, that every idea that he has is probably going to be gold because it's been proven over and over and over. The original trilogy, throughout the Indiana Jones trilogy, as it existed up to this point, yeah, everything this guy touched— in regard to these franchises was Dynamite. Mm-hmm. I think he just put pen to paper and just thought it was that the first draft was perfect, I suppose, right? But I also think you, you brought up a good point earlier, which is like this guy really, really wanted to experiment with green screens and he wanted to experiment with digital capture, which was pretty, you know, pretty new and pretty revolutionary at the time. And I think he cared more about that kind of stuff than he did about character or performance. But I think James Cameron's an interesting example of this too, where, you know, what's the one thing that guy is always getting criticized about? Even the people who begrudgingly admit that Titanic is a good movie, they still always tend to um, to criticize his, his writing and his dialogue, right? Yeah. I mean, I think James Cameron is a much better writer than George Lucas is, yeah. <laughs> evidenced by you know Aliens and Terminator 2 at the least. Mm-hmm. But I just don't think Lucas really cares about that kind of stuff enough to invest in as much time in it as he does into research and development. And there's that great, there's that famous picture, right, where they show him in 1980 or whatever standing in front of all these models and rigs and miniatures and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there's the picture of him in 1999 standing in front of a green screen. Yeah. Kind of tells you everything you need to know.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just it's just interesting to me like how genius fades or whatever because, you know, he had always been known as a story guy. Like, that's his thing, whether it's Indiana Jones or whether it's Star Wars. and You know, Star Wars being based on Hero Cycle and Joseph Campbell bullshit and the fact that he lent so little credence to the importance of any semblance of story any sort of coherent story this movie lacks a protagonist movie just doesn't make sense he's throwing in a bunch of trade federation bullshit for no goddamn good reason he totally undermined the mythos of like the jedi and all the shit he had created 20 years earlier so it's like it's just so hard to fathom losing touch losing the thing that made you famous in the first place by just sheer arrogance and fame and fortune or whatever baffling and then there's the wherewithal to say fuck it all i'm gonna make two more of these things
1: I mean, I think that the, the train had really left the station yeah. by this. You know, like, I think they were obviously already in production of the second one before this one even came out. Yeah. You know, and they they, they you know they probably were honestly probably, what do you call it, block shooting some of this stuff. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they were already shooting some stuff for Attack of the Clones simultaneously
0: with this. Do you think this movie would be better regarded or worse regarded if it wasn't a Star Wars branded film?
1: Interesting. If it was just a space opera
0: that just was if it was completely... this movie, I mean, whether or not you know the, Star, the original trilogy exists, if this was like you change the characters' names, the Jedi have a different name, whatever. If this movie, with all its plot points and visuals and everything, was the same movie, you didn't have the Star Wars name attached baggage. to it. Yeah, yeah. You're, I think you're talking
1: about baggage, and honestly, I think it would be worse regarded. Yeah. I think we actually let certain things slide because we're like, well, there's you know, there's that soaring John Williams score, and oh yeah, but there's those lightsabers, and mm-hmm. oh there's you know, there's young Obi Wan. I mean, I think we I, give it, I think we even get a little more leeway than it honestly deserves.
0: I 100% agree with you. Uh, you know, I've come to that uh, realization, but I, I do think that most people people and most fans would say the opposite. I think people say, oh, you're, you're shitting on this movie just because it's a franchise movie or, or, or whatever. I think this would be considered an absolute baffling disaster if it wasn't attached to the Star Wars name, which is why why there were any good reviews initially at all. Yeah, and even
1: George Lucas couldn't have done this on this level. Yeah, Famously, this is like actually an independent film yeah. that he financed himself, right? Yeah. So I guess technically he could have thrown hundreds of millions of dollars at an original space opera that had nothing to do with Star Wars. He pre-sold a lot of the toys for this, which raised some of the money, and these toy companies are going to want the brand, and I think it all, all, you know, ends up coming down to the relationship to the franchise as a whole, and the baggage that that brings with it, and the perks that that brings with it simultaneously, mm-hmm. and it was just really interesting to see the entire world rally around this bright, hot center that we all rally around and got excited about, and you can kind of feel that ebbing and flowing each week with this whole Game of Thrones thing we're going through now, right? Yeah. Like, everybody has rallied around this series, and yet it's made some controversial decisions recently which you know maybe it's losing some people maybe it's angering some people maybe that Benioff and Weiss's intention you know Lucas wasn't trying to do anything provocative with Phantom Menace I think it's exactly the movie he wanted to make but I don't think he was trying to provoke anybody you know I don't think he was trying to jab anybody or trying to undermine the, uh, the legacy of the series right I mean I think he was doing this thing pretty earnestly
0: you know I'm not sure about that actually I mean I think he has talked about how he wanted it to be different and I don't know if he resented the not the success of Star Wars I think he wanted to go away from what made the original trilogy successful, and he went way far <laughs> away from that. I do think he wanted to make it a different kind of success than the original Star Wars, and I, I think he probably willfully tried to go from a lot of the story arcs and stuff that, that that made the first one successful. But
1: that's an interesting reading. I've never I've never thought about it that way. I mean, you're you're not saying that it's just necessarily a big overt fuck you to the fans necessarily, but it is an attempt to try and go in a completely opposite direction to just make a 90 degree turn from where, where the where the original trilogy was going. Yeah,
0: I think he, I think he's talked about that how about he wanted to subvert he, he didn't want to do the, you know, just remake the same trilogy. I think he's been on record pretty blatantly saying that. Hmm. But but I I do agree with you. I don't think he went in with malice. I don't think he was trying to provoke anybody or give a big fuck you to the audience in any way. And I I don't think the Game of Thrones guys are doing that doing that either. It's interesting to see the the anger of game of thrones versus the sort of uh, bargaining of the, of the star wars fans right uh, and maybe, <laughs> sure. maybe that's just has something to do with the the episodic nature and just the, the sort of internet culture we have nowadays
1: i, I think the fact that this came out in a time where people didn't have that outlet to voice their anger so they internalized a lot of it right sure. so you had a lot of people who were confused and bargaining because they, they couldn't go online well, i guess to a certain extent they could but not not in the same way they can today mm-hmm. and maybe that's maybe that's a good thing maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe everything has become toxic as a result of the fact that people can go online and now these, this anger can become weaponized. Yeah. But at the time, I think there was a lot more of people just sort of like wandering around You know, I'm walking around in a circle being very confused. And like I said, going to see this thing multiple times because they feel like they'd missed something. And as a result, I just think it really, really took the wind out of the sails of this thing for a long time. And, you know, the Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, like you said, they got incrementally better from a critical standpoint and they still made a hell of a lot of money. But I think the brand was forever tarnished as a result of this of this fiasco to the point that it'll never be what it was before the Phantom Man. It's always going to have that the stink the Phantom Menace, if you will, right?
0: Thinking about the hype for this movie, or just my internal hype for, for this movie versus Force Awakens, the, the stakes seemed lower for Force Awakens just because we knew what had come before, just because the, the prequels had, again. yeah prequels had lowered the bar to a degree where we just wanted to get back on steady footing. That's what J.J. did, so God bless him for doing that.
1: We were at a really interesting precipice here with the rise of the Matrix and sort of like the fall of Star Wars happening the same year. And and I wish we would, you know, it's it's tough because then those Matrix sequels come along and yeah. they really disappointed everybody as well. You know, and it's hard when you're making R-rated sequels and stuff. It's a shame because it feels like we were really on the on the cusp of, of something interesting in terms of let's let's really champion the originality of something like the Matrix and let's see where that can take us as a result of sort of trying to reheat something that maybe maybe we'll never be able to recapture that magic mm-hmm. by going back to that series again, right? Yeah. And unfortunately what happened was we we move on into the next chapter, which is is the reevaluation, sort of like the reimagining of comic books. The realization that there's an entire, there's basically a bottomless pit of content there of IP that we can get our hands on and we can explore all that. Yeah. And that becomes the next thing. And honestly, Star Wars seems kind of quaint nowadays compared to that, right? You know, going to see Avengers Endgame, you see the the Rise of Skywalker trailer and, you know, the swell of that John Williams music still brings goosebumps, but it seems kind of old-fashioned in comparison, doesn't it?
0: It seems a little old-fashioned and just the, the sort of world-building and elongated story and character arcs within the Marvel Universe yeah it does make the star wars stuff even the new ones which i like yeah it does make it seem a little a little simple yeah uh, yeah yeah quaint i think is is the right word for it, just because you know we've seen what franchise can do with their characters in their story if they take their time and really plan ahead six hours is is not a ton of time it's to Tell a really intricate tale, right? It's going to be more fable like and, and more simplistic just by nature.
1: How many times would you say you've watched this film in the last 20 years? I mean, how many times you see it in the theater, and how many times you think you've watched it since?
0: I definitely saw it a few times in the theater, and we got the DVD, I remember. And you know, I was just interested. I was a big special features nut back then, so I wanted to see all the behind the scenes stuff. And like, again, as any Star Wars fan back in those days, still 16, just think, okay, just doing some bargaining, and like this is just set up, <laughs> this is just set up for the next two, you know, the next two will be really really good so i probably saw it a few times on dvd and then uh, over the last 15 years member berries probably put it on a couple times and been like fuck this after 10 minutes it is
1: funny how you just i always compare it to Kingdom of the crystal skull because i'm just like it can't possibly be as bad as i remember it can't yeah. possibly be that bad and then you watch it and it's actually worse
0: yeah this this rewatch took me i think I watched in like four pieces. Like it just—it just took me forever to get through this thing because it's tough. It's so boring, and it's and and so boring and so baffling, and the dialogue is just unbelievably horrible. Um, you know, people make fun of George Lucas for the bad dialogue and, and New Hope. And it's not even close to as bad. It's not even the same ballpark as bad as, as the stuff in Phantom Menace. And the actors are, I mean, good actors, they're just given nothing to work with. And you, it, just, it just feels just feels gross kind of watching this movie.
1: It does. That's a good word for it. And the other thing that makes me feel gross is I actually kind of feel bad for Jake Lloyd. Yeah. Because he's so awful in the film. You know, he was just a little kid. And this movie kind of ruined his life in a lot of it ways. It did, Like. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he made money and is probably still getting residuals from this, and and good. He's probably going to need that because, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's certainly not going to, you know, never never going to have a career as an actor. But apparently, he like dealt with a lot of abuse, you know, yeah. like verbal abuse throughout his his adolescence and into college and stuff. You know, dealt with some with some substance abuse issues as a result, and he's just he just had a rough road. And I think a lot of it has to do with his performance here, how badly that character's written, how doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and the fact that you have this child actor who's clearly out of his depth, you know, sharing a screen with quite possibly the greatest child actor of all time, right? Natalie Portman. I I mean, maybe, maybe you know, maybe Christian Bale would be part of that conversation as well. But yeah, you're basically looking at the platonic ideal of a child actor growing into, you know, an adult actor, um, just blowing this kid off the screen. That relationship needs to make sense going forward, right? And if it doesn't, uh, we're already behind the eight ball with this thing.
0: You know, it's it's funny when you talk about child actors, especially one that young. Of course, talent has has something to do with it and you know bad casting but a lot of a a child's performance is up to the director when you're dealing with a kid that age and it's clear that george lucas doesn't give a shit about working with actors all that much or or, you know trying to get better takes lucas was okay with with the way he gave that dialogue and didn't care to make it better in any way and just hung him out to dry totally and completely
1: yeah and when you read about the casting process it really, really sounds like the decision to cast Jake Lloyd was made out of a sort of a agreement that he was adequate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't sound like there was any excitement. about it was just like, yeah, he's the right age. He's got the right look. He seems to have a lot of energy. He's probably adequate. This is the character you're gonna you're gonna wrap this entire trilogy around. Like the, the whole point you're, the whole point of doing this is that you're going to explore the arc of this character, and you're just gonna settle for this particular you know. And this is the same year that you know the Sixth Sense and Haley Joel Osment come along. Mm-hmm. Not that Haley Joel Osment should have been cast as Anakin, but like, come on, guys, like you need to raise your standards a little bit here. When you think about how dark this character is gonna get. Nothing in this performance or in the portrayal of Anakin would lead you to believe that there's anything dark about this yeah, character, no right? No edge like, whatsoever. Not none whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he's like credibly upbeat, quippy, and seems super excited about everything. Like he should. This should be. We need to talk about Kevin, right? I mean, this kid should be.
0: <laughs> yeah. Troubled. He should be troubled at least, yeah, somewhat, or at least some some sort of violent tendencies or something. Yeah. There's nothing to hang on to at all.
1: Show him torturing a Nerf herder or something, right? <laughs> that be or a womper. Wamp. Yeah, womp, womp
0: yeah, rat. yeah a womp rat. Nerf. Or we're
1: just a guy, all right? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So this movie, you know, came out May nineteenth, nineteen ninety nine, on a budget of one hundred fifteen million dollars, which seems uh, pretty modest at this point, but at the time was was obviously pretty pricey. Once you factor in all the various three D re releases and stuff over the years, this movie basically represents about one point zero two seven billion dollars. Yeah. It's currently uh, the 18th highest grossing film of all time adjusted. And uh, by the time this episode comes out, uh, Endgame should be pretty darn close to passing it. Good. It's the 15th highest grossing film of all time
0: domestic. Seems high. Um, <laughs> all right, Matt, any, any any final thoughts here?
1: It's a tough movie to revisit, but I do think it is you know significant for a number of reasons. And I, I'm expecting we're not going to be the only ones who are going to be revisiting and reevaluating this month.
0: I bet there will be some uh, some defenders. I bet there will be some contrarian articles, people saying it's not as bad as you thought. Which is my prediction. We'll see.
1: Is Jar Jar as as abysmal to you now as he was <laughs> in uh, 1999, or has he just
0: gotten worse? Is Jar Jar actually the hero of the Phantom Menace?
1: <laughs> well, Qui-Gon Jinn certainly seems like the villain to me, considering that pretty much everything he does, including bringing this evil villainous kid mm-hmm. you know, into the Jedi Order, is obviously a bad thing in the grand scheme of things. Things, right,
0: the fucking whole Tatooine thing just bothers me so you're a fucking Jedi, you're a queen, just take the kid, take the part, get out of there. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> fucking Watto's your biggest adversary? My God.
1: It's good to like look back on 1999 as a year in which incredibly like historically significant things were happening. And even though this is not a good movie and the legacy of it is not positive, it just points to the fact that important things were going on this year. Because even though this is not a good movie, certainly an important film for a number of reasons culturally. Yeah. And so that's uh, that's exactly what we're doing this series to, to re- revisit, reevaluate, and uh, try and put a, a retrospective Spin on those kinds of things, right? Absolutely. This is an unprecedented moment in um, pop culture history. What happened in May of 1999 was extraordinarily significant, and, you know, we felt it at
0: the time. Matt, this has been uh, Retrospectating 1999 Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Till next time, it's been We Like Movies. <gasps>
1: Hey everybody, Matt here with a quick, friendly, and humble request. As we round the corner into our ninth year on the way to a decade of We Like Movies and closing in on 300 episodes, we thought it might be a good time to talk about donations. If you felt so inclined, perhaps consider visiting the donation page at www.welikemovies.com and help us out with a small ovation. Anything you'd be willing to contribute would help us offset the cost of seeing upwards of 100 movies in theaters per year, as well as the expense of maintaining the site. We're not looking to get rich off this podcast, and we certainly don't do it for the money, but any assistance you'd be willing to provide lessens the financial strain of Producing the content we're committed to providing you with. Thank you so much for your continued patronage. 2019 is going to be our biggest year yet, and we're so excited to have you with us. Thanks again.